0: I'm Chris Riley, editor of Sweet Code and founder of Fixate. I just so happen to like food and software. So I'm going to connect with developers and engineers at their favorite places to eat and chat about what it's like to build modern applications. This is Developers Eating the World. Yeah, so this is episode eight Developers Eating the World. I'm sitting down with Sam, fellow Connects Workspace co member. And uh, where are we? We're at El Dorado in Golden, Colorado. Mexican joint. Which I haven't been here yet. What's the best thing to order?
1: Oh, I have no idea. I'm getting a chimichanga.
0: (laughs) the thing is, everything in Colorado, there's green chili. There is that. Pretty much everything. Which I love green chili, so it's fine.
1: I don't know. I had some the other day, and it wasn't that good.
0: Uh, so Sam, you know the reason I wanted to talk to Sam is Sam is in DevOps, but a very unique DevOps scenario. Um, you build DevOps for LabView. Can you explain what LabView is?
1: Yeah, so LabView is this programming language. It stands for Lab it's a language or a platform. A language. Well. It's kind of this platform and a language. It's uh, It stands for Laboratory Virtual Instrumentation Engineering Workbench or something like nice. that. Nice.
0: Nice long name.
1: Yeah. It was basically designed, I want to say, back in like the 80s. These guys were selling hardware GPIB controllers to talk to instruments like uh, oscilloscopes and stuff and take measurements. And they realized that the engineers they were selling it to didn't know how to program. Yeah. So, these two guys selling GPIB controllers basically started out of their garage. They realized that the engineers weren't really programmers, and they kind of had this realization that when you start writing code, generally you draw like the little diagrams, right? Like charts and diagrams and the little flow charts with the diamond shapes and stuff. And they thought, well, wouldn't it be great if we could just let the engineers draw those and then we turn it into code on the back end. And so that's kind of how LabVIEW is. Is it being. like
0: visual basic for hardware based
1: applications? Kind of, but it's way more advanced than that now. But yeah, basically you draw it's graphical, so you draw you oh. have these blocks and you drop them down and you connect them with wires. Got it kind of looks okay. like an electrical schematic.
0: So and in the the typical markets that use um, LabVIEW always has to be something in like devices Yes. IoT. So
1: well, so there's some IoT stuff, but like they use it for NASA uses it, CERN uses it, uh, SpaceX, a lot of those places. It's used in a lot of laboratories in like universities and major companies. So basically, the big thing I would say is it's always tied around like hardware. Like lots of people make like databases and web apps and that type of stuff that have no hardware involved. This is almost always tied to hardware. So what? So happy.
0: what makes you think it works in a DevOps scenario then?
1: The problem is a lot of it was written for engineers who are not programmers, right? And so, you know, people start writing these little programs to talk to an oscilloscope and capture some data, and that's all great and wonderful. But then you want to control something like the CERN hadron collider, and that's a whole other level of complicated, right? And how do you then apply all the software engineering principles of unit testing and all that stuff and continuous integration? So that's kind of where.
0: Now, do you feel like software and hardware have? Blended even more in the last, I don't know, five years?
1: Um, Well, Well, I guess what makes you ask that question? Well,
0: back in the day, I mean, back in the day, um, if you were a quote-unquote developer for hardware, you were writing drivers, firmware, things of that sort, there wasn't a lot of concern about release velocity, you know, any of the modern aspects that you had in web application development. Do you think that that a lot of the requirements that we see in the web app world have now bled over into Well, hardware. I mean, I
1: do think you see a lot more of that fast release cycle. I think...
0: Again, why, why do you feel like it's necessary to have modern dev practices for what was classically 100% waterfall development?
1: Well, I mean, basically the main reason waterfall development went away, right? Because requirements change. Right, The customer never knows what they want. And it's, you know, if you don't do that iterative thing, it just becomes a mess, and it takes forever to get to market. I mean, I used to work for a nuclear company, and you want to talk about taking forever to do anything? That's like you
0: know, yeah, and so brutal. so even in that world, being able to be responsive and have good release velocity matters.
1: Yeah, and but is it a is it I mean, because really of competition
0: or what? Is it to stay competitive or what?
1: Um. It's just to get anything done, I mean, and make it actually work. I mean, yeah. I don't know, maybe I'm not doing...
0: No, no, I mean, that's interesting, because most people adopt, you know, in the software world, DevOps was adopted in a scenario... Like, the biggest pitch for DevOps is, if you want to stay competitive, you got to adopt DevOps. Um,
1: See, to me, it's more about writing good, quality software, and then it's about... Taking the engineer who didn't know anything about programming, learn LabVIEW, but doesn't understand software engineering and dependency management and design and unit testing and all this stuff, and then trying to bring them up to speed—that's kind of the angle. Interesting.
0: Oncoming. So it's more of a inside-out necessity. Now, do you see? classical software developers also getting into LabVIEW, so going the other way around versus the engineer getting in. There
1: software. are a handful of them, but yeah, they're pretty rare. They're like unicorns. Yeah.
0: So what's interesting about LabVIEW, that's a unique challenge is the fact that it's a client-side application, right? Client yeah. server, it has GUI that's also client server. So how do you approach CI/CD for that type of application?
1: Uh, well, right now I'm using GitLab, but basically, I mean, it's difficult. Like the other major challenge is, you can't really run LabVIEW in a like a Docker image or something. It doesn't right. really work, and so you end up with like tons of virtual machines, which is kind of a pain to manage.
0: Right. So how do you manage the infrastructure side?
1: Um. Well, right now, I mean, I use GitLab. I use their hosting for the, for the GitLab instance, and then I just have a server in my house full of uh, virtual machines. Yeah. Are
0: you using like Chef or Puppet or anything to spin up instances?
1: Uh, no, that would be way too sophisticated. <laughs> uh, yeah, pretty much. That's one of the things, actually. So I gave a talk at a conference recently. I was trying to figure out a way to spin stuff up automatically, and apparently it's quite difficult. So.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I just came from ChefConf, and I know that You know the infrastructure element, or laying out the servers, is still a big challenge even for modern app dev, but especially on the client side. So what do you do? You have like a VM image that you start from, like a base. Yeah, I
1: have one image, and I just clone it and keep cloning it. Interesting. And yeah, so right now, like. There's challenges because in LabVIEW, because it all depends on hardware, you end up with these things where for every project you have a different set of drivers that you need because they're talking to different hardware.
0: Oh right. And
1: sometimes they're not all compatible, and so that—that's what instantiated the use of virtual machines was to uh, figure all that out because you know if I'm working on two or three different projects at a time, how do I keep all the driver versions separate without installing and reinstalling them all the time, and then sometimes that causes problems and.
0: Hmm. So what are you actually deploying then? Like, what are you storing in GitLab?
1: Well, I store the source code in GitLab, right? In the, oh, okay. In the so Get-
0: that's right. Because you said it's a language and kind of a platform. So you're, you're storing the source files from, Lab. how is it compiled then?
1: So when you're in the development environment, you're drawing your diagrams, right? And you wire stuff up. And it's automatically compiling right there, like in real time, as you drop stuff down. It compiles, and then it has like a run hour. You click the run hour, and it runs and does whatever it does. And then when you deploy it, you build an executable, and you send, you know, then you install it like any other executable. Now, can
0: Lab or can uh, GitLab build the executable?
1: Um. Well, GitLab runs a CI that then calls back to my virtual machine on my server that says, "Hey, run and build this." Got it. Because you need you need the library development environment in order to build the executable.
0: Yeah, so what in this environment? Like, what do you think is a good or expected release cadence? Like, is it weekly? Is it monthly? Well, so
1: it's kind of different, like websites, right? I mean, like you can constantly update them, right? These things are like deployed and like, for example, some of the stuff I built when I worked for the nuclear company went inside containment in a nuclear power plant and it was just there. And there was no like updates, right? And so, and that was all kind of like the old school waterfall style method. So yeah, like now I'm trying to get to the point where I can do like, where I add a feature like every month or so or something. I mean, it really depends on the size of the feature and what's involved and yeah. I'm trying to get on, like, you know, two week or month long turnaround cycles. Right. Yeah. It totally depends on the customer and stuff, but like a lot of what I'm doing now are like test stations for like testing circuit boards or something. And so you can add some features, but until you have the whole test suite for this particular circuit board done, it can't really get released. Yeah. Yeah. So So I mean, I do the intermediate builds just so I can make sure that everything works and that, you know. Do my testing. If that makes sense.
0: So, given what you've learned, like building CI/CD environments for LabVIEW, do you think that that can spread into other types of applications that are ex- you know equally as heavy?
1: In ter- when you say heavy, in terms of like
0: you know similar. Similar complexity, they're compiled, what you're building is compiled, you're dealing with a platform. Are there other areas, like where do you want to go with your knowledge of building a DevOps environment for LabVIEW?
1: Well, really I'm trying to just, right now, like the LabVIEW community is so far behind in terms of software best practices, that's kind of where my focus is, is trying to get more and more people to actually use it And then maybe I can convince National Instruments, who who like owns LabVIEW, to add some stuff like Docker images and some other stuff to make it easier. But I feel like right now, like the advanced user base is is doing that, parts of it, but not enough people to really push them that direction.
0: This is what I call a smothered burrito. Man, it's more smothered than burrito, but that's good. I like it messy, at least I'm not picking it up. So what was the catalyst for saying, hey, I think that LabVIEW needs DevOps?
1: Well, I mean, honestly, it just kind of started kind of organically, like, basically, like in the beginning when I started, literally, they weren't even using, like, source code control. And so, you know, I went to all these conferences and I saw people use it. I was like, that sounds awesome. I'm going to go do that. And so I started using that. And then... The continuous integration stuff has really only started in the past like couple of years. And I saw it at a conference, I was like, "Oh, that's cool." The implementation that I saw involved like using Jenkins and using uh, some other server uh, yeah, I think they're using GitHub or something. but basically it was like, oh, you have to maintain, set up and maintain this separate Jenkins server, right? And I'm not really a server admin guy. I didn't really want to do that. And then a friend of mine introduced me to GitLab and I saw that it had it all self-contained in like one server and I was like, oh, well, that's pretty easy. And then also too, like over time working on different projects, once I figured out the whole virtual machine thing, then I kind of put two and two together. I was like, oh, I can make this work now. Nice. So, so yeah, I kind of had to like, if I hadn't figured out the virtual machine thing, it would kind of still be a pain. Well, it
0: sounds that like it started out. from the source repository, which all dev, in my opinion, should be... The source repository is yeah. like the pivot point for everything.
1: Yeah, yeah well, that also helped too. Because uh, like, when I started, like, we were still using subversion. And it's, it works. It's painful. Uh, get is much nicer. But yeah, I got into the whole Agile thing because when I worked for uh, this nuclear company, I started on this project. They had hired a new guy and he was super into it. And uh, we just uh, started doing it. And before that, we didn't really have, I mean, I want to say we had the waterfall process, but we didn't really have a process period. It was just kind of like, whatever goes, make it work kind of thing.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, you think about things like video games and um, any compiled applications. And I think the immediate assumption is DevOps is not going to work. Well, not only do you have a compiled application that you're working with, it's also devices.
1: Yeah, no, the hardware—that's that's actually the challenge. So that is a big challenge because, you know, I could do the DevOps to do some things, but like I can't test the interaction with the hardware very well, right? So you how know, do I can, yeah?
0: How do you handle that?
1: Uh, well, so I've just gotten super into doing unit testing lately, and basically I just use like mock objects and uh, you know test stubs and stuff to try to like separate that stuff out as best I can.
0: Mocks so, are cool. Yeah. Yeah, how do you decide what you build into your mock? Like what sort of response, like, do you have to test the hardware first? Are you building off of schematics?
1: Well, so it depends. So people in my world, sometimes you get a lot of people that do complete turnkey systems. So they design everything, like the hardware up. And I'm really trying to focus more on just the software. But I mean, I get sucked into some of that because I have a background in electrical engineering. So when they run into problems, they always ask me.
0: But how do you know that the response from your mock is gonna be accurate?
1: Oh, that's like, totally, yeah. Um, yeah, basically, I'm just making sure that I'm calling the correct things. And uh, that's, a, if I need like accurate timing and stuff, I do tests like on a bench top with the actual machine. But I can't do that like automatically through continuous integration. Really.
0: I guess um, the hardware that you're dealing with is so snowflake that you can't rely on like emulators or anything, can you?
1: One of the things about LabVIEW is it connects to any, almost any kind of instrument, right? So, so it integrates directly with a lot of NI stuff. What's but denied? then it all, uh, National Instruments, so oh, yeah, yeah. Should, have, should have specified that. Yeah, so they're the guys who started out making the GPIB things and now they, they own LabVIEW and they, they still make a lot of hardware. So it the, integrates natively with their hardware and there's like an API, mm. and they have some simulated devices in there. Got it. The, my problem with their simulated devices, they work well for some things. Like if you're just logging data, it works fine. So like their analog inputs will just like, the analog outputs they simulate, they just, you write a value to, okay, who cares? The analog inputs will like output a sine wave and like the digital ports just count. And that's great if you're just logging data, but if you want to like trigger something when this bit flips do XYZ, it's really hard. So you kind of have to like write something else in there to do it. You can't just use their native simulation layer. But their simulation layer is really good for catching like if you misconfigure something, You know, if you, like the settings for like a digital port or something, if you set it the wrong way, it'll tell you. So that's really nice. But, oh so, do
0: you have a hard time getting scientists and the hardware engineers on board with just software in general?
1: Uh, software quality, yes. They're very much like uh, belt and suspenders, kind of like just make it work. So, yeah, that's part of the challenge. The other challenge is just working with managers, and I'm sure even in text-based programming languages everywhere else, they run into too, like you get a manager who's not a coder, right? they're managing the project, all they see is the end result. All they see is does it work or not, right? And, you know, if it works but it looks, you know, there's a house of cards underneath, they're happy because they don't know any better. And that really causes problems because you get people, like is really good at rapid prototyping you can get up a GUI in like a couple seconds. Right. And
0: people think that's the end product.
1: <laughs> yes, exactly. Like, oh, can, can you do this? Okay, let me put together a prototype. Okay, great. There's a product. Yeah. And it's like, well, no, that's just the prototype. Like, you know, there's more to it than that. And I also find, like, when it comes to software testing, like, it's kind of nuts. Like, the analogy I came up with is it's like you go to, like, a store because you want to buy a car. And you say, well, what's your quality control process on the car? Well. You know, when the car comes off the lot, we give Bobby the keys, he drives it around a few times. If he's feeling frisky, he goes on the highway for a few miles and he brings it back. If the wheels don't fall off, then we sell you the car. (laughs) Cause like, I mean, I've been to places where they're like, oh, we're gonna build this circuit board tester. Okay, well, what are the specs? How, How do we test this thing at the end? And they're like, well, we got two good circuit boards and one bad circuit board. If the good ones pass and the bad one fails, we're happy. And you're like, well, there should be a little bit more than that, you know?
0: Yeah, that's interesting. I guess that flies in the face of a conversation I uh, recently had about um, focusing on the alignment of what you put in and what you expect out and creating the black box in the middle. (laughs) If you only do that, then I guess the black box in the middle, number one, could be extremely limited or number two could be doing, you know, the, the algorithms may not be validated uh, yes. against anything real huh. So what, what would you say recently has been your biggest like aha moment or bit major win with a technical team scientists aware uh, that you know they it clicked and they're like, wow, okay, I get it. I get why we're investing in this software development process thing.
1: Well I knew I had a project probably last year. And somehow they had had a working machine and the code was just like complete crap, but somehow it worked and I convinced him to let me rewrite it from scratch, which I don't know how they ever did that, so. The
0: code or the process as well, or
1: both? The code. I mean, I basically just started from scratch. It was actually interesting because they all, there were like three or four people involved and they all thought they knew what the machine did and they didn't have it written down anywhere and they were all wrong. How
0: do you document so, this stuff? I mean, uh, just as
1: I go, I went and, yeah.
0: So it, it's still kind of a manual process, or, or do you have anything in the process that kind of documents it for you?
1: No, basically I wrote up all the documents as we went. I had to, because nobody else had taken the time to write anything down. And it basically, like, the requirements were, document was, like, make it like the other machine. And I tried to get more out of him and it was like pulling teeth. I was like, okay, we'll we'll make it work.
0: You're dealing with an audience that, uh, I don't know, it seems like a hard sell to convince on modern modern dev practices. But there has to be this moment where they realize that they got new functionality that they wouldn't have gotten otherwise or that it would have taken six months to get. Or there is a problem with their code, like you said, that they didn't, Yep. No. was was there and now they feel like idiots well
1: i think they were really happy in the end because i mean the old one the guy really didn't pay any attention to like user experience at all and it was like a mess to try to use it so the new one is like way more intuitive which i think they liked and it's way more stable so they would have issues with the other one quite frequently and they haven't had any issues with this one so i think they see the value in that
0: yeah, well, I think UI UX ever since the advent of the iPhone, or mobile, I should say, the smart, quote-unquote smartphone, everybody's interested in that, whereas, you know, a lot of people were just happy with a command line interface.
1: Yeah, no, definitely. Um, well, I mean, the people I work with, they actually, like, LabVIEW programmers eschew the command line interface, like, so they don't want anything to do with text, but, I mean, Part of the problem is a lot of these things are made for like engineers and they don't really engineers don't really care about pretty at all. It's all about just functionality. But unfortunately a lot of stuff it's not very functional either. And you also get engineers who are like, you know, super detail oriented and want to see every single detail on the main screen and then you know you can't figure out what the heck's going on because you got fifty million things there that are being displayed and which one's important and which one do I actually care about.
0: Well, there's absolutely a functional benefit to being more efficient with what you're working with, which is all in the UI. Yeah. Maybe not pretty per se, but fewer clicks better. Uh, yes. So what do you think is the next big undertaking in LabVIEW and DevOps? Are there any other tooling you're looking at? Um, any new processes you're considering?
1: Um, the big thing right now I think is more like uh, just uh, getting people on board with all that and, and getting to automate like the full process from like, you know, I, I check in my code, it does all the tests and build and then actually deploys it and maybe even someday deploys it like to embedded systems. So. You know, Labby runs on these little embedded things, they call them compact Rios. It's basically a Linux real-time processor connected to an FPGA. And uh, so deploying to those would be really cool.
0: Yeah, now would that be used in the IoT world?
1: Yes, they're used for a lot of things. Uh, Anywhere you want real-time control, but like one of the examples might be like uh, water meters, you know, like buried underground, you know or like I've heard them being used up uh, coal stacks, like uh, power plants for like scrubbers and things like that. Right.
0: It's
1: just kind of areas where like, you know, it's remote enough that you don't want to like climb all the way up there or like dig out the water meter to do whatever, so.
0: How do you find your clients?
1: That is a very good question. Mm-hmm. Um, I do a lot of marketing I write a lot of blog posts, I post a lot on LinkedIn, I go to conferences, Um, just those type of activities.
0: Yeah, how much time do you think you spend on that kind of stuff? Because that's hard for any techie.
1: Oh, it's uh, an inordinate amount of time. Yeah. I block out at least one day a week for that every week. Okay. So, at least eight hours a week. Plus the time to go to the conferences and write papers and yeah.
0: Wow. Yeah. I mean, that'd be hard for anybody who's considering getting into even, you know, just outsource dev, which is even more difficult because there's a million outsourced developers out there yeah, in your world. Yeah, that's the problem. It's a yeah. little bit more discreet.
1: Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, that's always an issue, outsourcing stuff. But.
0: How long have you been uh, running your practice?
1: Oh, I want to say three or four years.
0: Three or four years and you have a little kid
1: yes <laughs> that changes everything yeah especially when your wife quits her job so now <laughs> the pressure's on i've been doing a lot more marketing lately <laughs> <laughs> nothing
0: yeah uh, necessity nothing i'm much more motivated
1: <laughs> yeah well i mean you know working for yourself you kind of set your own hours like you know years past like if i wanted to go for a mountain bike ride in the middle of the day like no big deal i'll you know i'll figure it out but now it's like oh no nope, better work More money.
0: So you mentioned uh, GitLab and we talked about Jenkins. Is there any other tooling, like modern dev tooling, you're using? um Open source projects for unit testing, or what else do you use?
1: Well, I do for unit testing, I use this thing called JKIVI tester.
0: Okay.
1: And it's basically like the J unit or X unit type tester for LabVIEW.
0: Oh, it was written specifically for LabVIEW. Mm Oh,
1: wow. Okay. Written in LabVIEW. So I use that. Um, Yeah, I've seen some other stuff. Like, uh, I know a lot of people use a lot of the Atlassian stuff Confluence, Jira, Bitbucket, all that stuff. Yeah. Now, I,
0: I just realized do you think that what you've built could be translated into, like, MATLAB? And, you know, it doesn't have the hardware element, but there's still. Yeah, as complex applications are compiled, Mathematica.
1: Yeah, MATLAB and LabVIEW were kind of like semi-competitors for a while. I think they finally settled all that. (laughs) Yeah, they had some issues.
0: It's like DevOps for science.
1: Yeah, no, that's
0: hard. There's the book you're going to write, DevOps for science.
1: (laughs) There. Hey, (laughs) I've been actually thinking about trying to write a book. Don't do it. Yeah, (laughs) my buddy Steve said that, you know, you write a book and then everybody thinks you're an expert. He's like, it doesn't matter if the book's crap. He's like, you just have an
0: option. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. I did one for SharePoint and then I abandoned SharePoint. Yeah,
1: well, Steve's book's really good. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I'm not a big fan of SharePoint, but...
0: I don't think anybody's a fan of SharePoint, which is not SharePoint's fault, to be fair. It's how it's sold and uh, expectations.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Which I think is true for a lot of platforms.
1: Uh, yeah that's huge. Managing expectations. But uh, back to your questions about LabVIEW and some of the challenges though like there are some real challenges with the fact that uh, LabVIEW is like graphical and not text-based and like you can't do like a diff or meaningful diff or merge or oh. so that creates all kinds of, I mean that's more like source code control right.
0: type issues. But, yeah. So how do you um, handle this?
1: Uh, basically, I just try to avoid it at all costs.
0: <laughs> well, that's interesting because you're kind of architecting your application around what you... Ex-
1: yeah, basically make your application really, really modular and don't ever have to merge. You can have <laughs> multiple people working in parallel, they just can't ever work on the same thing that's my strategy.
0: Are you ever decoding with other developers or is it usually just you?
1: Well, I mean, when I worked at Westinghouse, there was a group of us, but since I've been on my own, it's usually just me or me and like one or two other people, so.
0: Interesting. Well, yeah. That certainly helps.
1: Yeah. That makes it easy, yeah. No, yeah, I talk to people who work on teams of like 100 developers, and that's a lot harder to keep people from stepping on each other's toes.
0: And Then you have to worry about branches, and that's where merge is an absolute must.
1: Yes, yes, but I, I guess what we try to do is like if we if we branch and, and we each only stay in our own little silo when we merge back together, you know, if, if I'm working on just this one module over here and you're working on that one module over there, then they branch back together. When you merge it back together, it's just like a straight fast pole or something. Yeah. And it's not really a problem, usually. It well, sets the hope.
0: Well, you know what I like about, um, you know, what you're doing with LabVIEW, first of all, the the opposition to DevOps for a long time has been amazing. And then...
1: Really? What, what's oh, the opposition geez. come from? I mean, Just, it's more about
0: like three years ago oh. where people, it was the culture is for startups. Um, this level of automations for basic <laughs> web front ends, not for us you know things like that arguments and that's kind of gone away mm-hmm. but now we've gone even to an extreme which I didn't think we would go to talking to somebody like you who's trying to build or is building DevOps environments for hardware and compiled applications mm-hmm. which but also what's interesting is your motivator was a motivator of necessity yeah. not competition and staying ahead yeah, which man. in the software world it's all about that.
1: Yeah. Yeah, well, LabVIEW is like it's a little niche, there's not, I mean, every job's a custom job, so nobody's like trying to sell the next killer app that like millions of people are going to buy, right? I mean, they're competing to get like the big contract from GE or like some big company, right. but that's it.
0: That makes DevOps very real. Yeah. Like it's not, it's not just a nice to have, it, it makes it uh, very real. And Like you said, if, you're, if you care about good app dev, you're going to look at DevOps.
1: Yeah, well, and I mean, you know, like, all the stuff that goes out the door, like, we deal with things that control pressure vessels and motors and pumps and valves and can actually kill people, you know? Yeah, I mean, I worked on stuff that went in a nuclear power plant. I mean, if you screw that up enough, you could blow up a whole city.
0: There's your tagline. If you're building apps that can kill you, use DevOps.
1: (laughs) But, I mean, yeah, it's a way of, to me, it's a way of making sure that all the tests are run, all the boxes are checked, you know, and it's reproducible and, you know all the benefits that you get from automating anything.
0: Well, Sam, thank you. Thanks for uh, inviting me for an extremely wet burrito. That <laughs> is tasty. another Do you No, no, I uh-huh. think we're done. No soapapillas. Um, but thank you, and uh, yeah, we'll have to do another episode um, because I'm curious what's next in the world of DevOps for LabVIEW. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks.